Well, if you've attended Canyon for any amount of time, you might have noticed something different about the outline this morning. And I'd like to talk about that now rather than at the end because you might be fiddling with it all during the message. And so this way you can know why it is the way it is. Uh, This morning's outline has two parts. The first part is for this morning. It's a traditional teaching outline. It's a reflection of this morning's message. Those are the first two pages. The next two pages are daily readings and reflections for the next four days. As Pastor Kyle and Pastor James have both mentioned, we, we have a heart for this week to really draw closer to the Lord through Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday. And so it's going to be a three-part event, essentially. And so what we begin this morning, we want to carry through for the next four days, reading God's Word intentionally and reflecting on what we've read and examining our hearts to prepare ourselves to reflect and remember our Lord's death. Not just how he died, but why. That's more important, is why he died. And so that's the second part of that handout. So hopefully the mystery is solved. You may have noticed, life has become more uncertain, unpredictable. It seems things that used to be common knowledge or predictable that you can rely on are no longer reliable. What if you were told today, you have four days left to live? You can't shorten that time. You can't extend it. You have exactly four days to live. That's a guarantee. What would you do? What would you say? Who would you spend time with? Who would you avoid? Would you take a trip to the other side of the world and chew up half, half of that time in flying? Would you stay local? Would you try to mend broken relationships or cast them aside and focus in on those that you do have a relationship with? What would you do? Now, for some of our brothers and sisters here in in the church family, they have been facing that type of question. They received a medical diagnosis that said, absent a miracle, you have X number of time to live. And so we have brothers and sisters who, this is not a hypothetical question, but it's the reality that they are dealing with. It's an important question. Yes, today is Palm Sunday. And it's the day that we traditionally remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey to the cheers of all of the city one of my favorite passages in Scripture because it's the closest to how Jesus should be received that we see in Scripture until his return in the book of Revelation. That's why I love it, because he is worshipped and he is cheered as he should. And then what happens is we fast forward to Good Friday and we remember the Lord's death on the cross. But there's a gap of four days between Palm Sunday and Good Friday 
that we rarely have an opportunity to focus on. And that is the focus of this morning's message, is to look at those four days. Jesus knew. Jesus knew he had four days left before he was going to go to the cross. When he entered into Jerusalem, he knew four days later, on that Friday, he would, he would be crucified. So what did he do? What did he say? Who did he spend time with? What was the focus of his time? Now, it's important to note that all of the words of Jesus are important. But what our Lord said in those final four days is noteworthy. And so we'll be looking at that. And we'll see that there's a progression that if we take a step back and look at the arc of those four days, that the Lord was very intentional about what he said, who he said it to, and how much time he spent with them. And I think that could help us in setting our priorities to redeem the time, which is the title of this morning's message. So let's take a look at Monday, and this is going to be a flyover on some days, and then we'll dive into Scripture and look at what Jesus said and then kind of move on on that so it's not exhaustive. There is so much Scripture to describe and of what happened in those four days. But on Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple. He cast out the money changers from the temple. And this was the second time he did that. And he spoke one last time to the crowd. But they didn't believe. And we see that in the Gospel of John in chapter 12. The same crowd that was cheering him, throwing their cloaks on the ground and palm branches, sat under his teaching the next day and didn't believe. It happens that quickly. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it is written, Do not... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's only two choices. Friend of the world, friend of God. There's no third option. Friendship with the world. Friendship with the world's values. Friendship with the world's systems. Wanting the world to prosper. Wanting people of the world to prosper absent their repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. When we cheer on celebrities, politicians, and sports figures to worldly success without receiving the gift of salvation and walking in the newness of life, we are demonstrating friendship with the world. Worldly success without spiritual rebirth is not a joyous thing for those of us who have been saved because we know eternity is in the balance. Eternity is what matters. And enemies of the cross, those who are actively opposing the gospel, will attempt to distract us from the mission. And we actually see that on Tuesday morning when the Pharisees made three attempts 
to distract and entrap Jesus. So if you would, please open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew all morning. We've got a few hours, right? So Matthew 22. Now this is Tuesday morning of what is called Passion Week, that those days between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. Matthew 22, we're going to start in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Can you tell the sarcasm in their statement? Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. So here we see the Herodians attempted to entangle Jesus in a political debate. But we as disciples of Christ should keep the line separate between politics and faith clear. Our faith should influence our politics. But our faith should not be replaced by our politics. And you might wonder, well, how do I know if that's happened to me? How do I know if my faith has been replaced by my politics? One way to know is if you give a political answer to a non-political question. Someone says, what you have for dinner last night? And, and the response is something about some bill that was passed in Congress. That's a clue. If the name of the president or Brandon's name comes out of your mouth more frequently than the name of Jesus, if that's you, you hear that? That's the clue phone. It's for you. Be careful to keep those things clear. Jesus did. He didn't fall into the trap. In Titus chapter 3, it is written, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Do you know what it's called if we don't do that? Sin. It's called sin. If we don't obey what God's word commands us to do, it's sin. By God's grace, we have been forgiven of those sins. The the penalty of those sins has been paid in full by the blood of Christ. Amen? 
but we still confess and repent. We still fall short, and we have to uh, recognize that in our lives. I had an opportunity to share this verse with a brother about a week ago, kind of help him through something. And when I, when I read him the verse and said, you know, you're not doing part of that, it's sin, he goes, whoa, 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 that's not sin. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal. Every command in Scripture directed at us believers is our responsibility to be obedient to. We have God the Holy Spirit in us who empowers us to do it, and when we fall short, it is sin. It's that simple. Thank you, brother. And we need to be real with ourselves and not give a pass to some sins that we're comfortable with and hold ourselves accountable to those that we're also comfortable with but we can face. There's no loopholes. So, after failing to trap Jesus, they sent the Sadducees. They set up some contrived example about the resurrection. Now, we don't have time to read it this morning, but it is referenced in your notes, so you can have time this week to read that. But the, the point there is, number two, the Sadducees attempted to entrap Jesus in a doctrinal debate. Those of us who are disciples of Christ, we need to focus on things that draw attention to Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. Don't major in the minors. The key doctrines of our faith are clear. There are lesser ones where reasonable believers can disagree reasonably. Something like, you know, the timing of the rapture. And I'm reminded of, of an incident that happened here at Canyon nine years ago. We were out on Prescott Ridge by the old fairgrounds. And after service uh, one Sunday, there was a heated debate between two brothers who expressed different positions and opinions about the timing of the rapture. Things started to escalate, and they accused one another of being unbelievers and heretics. And it was getting very tense. We had to step in between them to prevent a fistfight from breaking out. That's not hyperbole. That actually happened. That is not how we are to respond to differences on the minors. I would say even respond to differences on the majors. We need to be careful. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And if we repented and believed, so we are. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. What does that mean if we let corrupting talk come out of our mouths? We've sinned. It's that clear. Turn down the temperature on debate. Cool things down. The flesh in us loves a good blazing fire. I want to throw some gasoline on that. We need to resist that temptation and speak uplifting and encouraging words, truthful words, as fits the occasion, and bring, it, bring things down. 
Next we see in Matthew 22, verse 35. Here we go, another attempt. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So in this third attempt, we see that the Pharisees attempted to ensnare Jesus in an ethical debate. We, as the disciples of Christ, need to take a step back and embrace the entirety of God's word. That's what Jesus did. He responded with a broader answer. Because there's no conflict in God's word. There are no contradictions. His word is perfect. But there are those who resist the cross who will take two verses out of context and try to prove that there's a contradiction. All to try to justify sin or justify their unbelief. And so we see in this last section here, after these three attempts, when interacting with the world, don't be distracted or sidetracked. Set boundaries, use discernment, stay on mission. As a believer, do you know what your mission is? Someone were to ask you, hey, you're saved, why are you still here on earth? Could you answer that question? Many of you can, but for those who can't, our mission as believers is to love God, love others, grow in Christ's likeness, share the gospel, and make disciples of those who repent and believe in Jesus. That's our mission. That's our focus. The primary purpose of our sanctified study was to use scripture and fellowship to help be set apart for this calling. I'm encouraged to hear the reports coming out of the ladies' groups who are doing sanctified, how it's bearing fruit in setting hearts and minds on Christ as the center of their lives. And for the students, the high school students, which can be a challenging time, as we, those of us who are no longer high school students, remember, could remember back then. It's a challenging time. And the Lord is using that to help guide them through that with the help and assistance of faithful leaders who are shepherding them through that. We are set apart. That takes us to Tuesday afternoon. Jesus left the leaders. He left the temple. And from midday Tuesday on throughout the rest of the week, he only spent time with his disciples. The next time that Jesus would see the Pharisees would be at his trial. At 
Time is very short now, and Jesus still has a lot to say to his disciples. And the next thing he spends some time on is talking about the community of believers, those who believe the gospel message. And this first point on that topic, that church community is not for personal gain, but for God's glory through worshiping him and the mutual ministry of the saints. That's church in a nutshell. When Jesus cleared that temple on Monday, overturned the tables of the money changers, that was the second time he did that. The first time was at the beginning of his ministry. So what can we take away from that? The money changers didn't stop. They didn't get freaked out by Jesus turning over the tables the first time. They kept on doing what they were doing. And one of the last public acts that Jesus did was to overturn the tables. That's noteworthy. I think it, it shows that the draw for personal gain in church is strong. The draw for personal gain in church is strong. And not just money. But position. Influence. Networking for businesses and hobbies. The motive is what can they physically get out of being active in church? But the motivation should be how does my involvement in church help me to worship God and obey him, bless others, and grow in my faith? Those are the questions we should be asking ourselves on a regular basis, examining ourselves. What is my motivation for the things that I do within the church? Serving the people I connect with, all aspects of my life. In John 13, 34, it is written, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Not perfect theology, not a perfect church ministry program, not perfect obedience, love. Love is that distinguishing, unique quality that we have for one another that shows the world that we are Jesus' disciples. That's not me saying it. This is the Lord himself saying it. He's the chief shepherd of the flock. That's what he said. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. A self-sacrificing love. A love that says, you before me. Not a love that elbows people out of the way to get to the front of the line. But one that thinks more highly of others than self. You before me. That's the Christian life. And Jesus also taught about what the disciples and those who would follow have in common. I call it the common in community. And there were three points, and we don't have time to read the underlying scripture there, but the references are there, plenty of time this week to dig into those truths. But the first one is, all believers are saved by one way, Jesus. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The path of our salvation was the same. Jesus. We have a shared experience. Our lives were so different. We were to compare our lives before Christ. It's all over the map. And yet, all who have repented and believed are born again, entered the same way through Jesus, through the shed blood of Christ. There's no loophole. There's no side window. There's no back door. Jesus is the only way. Next, all believers have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who empowers us to live a life that's pleasing to God. He is the power in us that helps us to be obedient to his word. Absent the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can't do the things that the Lord has called us to do. Maybe we could fake it for a season or two or three, but at the end we can't. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And he works the same way in all believers. So we can minister to one another. And no one is left out. If you have been born again, received the gift of salvation through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then you are born again and you have the indwelling God, the Holy Spirit in you. You are to minister to others as well as be ministered to. No one is to be sitting on the sidelines. Oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not equipped. Whatever the excuse, it's wrong. All hands on deck. If you're in the family of God, you're in the family and you've been equipped the same way. That's what we have in common. And third, all believers have one who is preeminent in their lives. Jesus. See, in in that list of three, it starts with Jesus, ends with Jesus. All are to abide in Christ. He is the reason for the things that we think, say, and do. The Jesus of the Bible for me is the same as Jesus of the Bible for you. We have that in common. So we can encourage, correct, and exhort one another. That's why our koinonia groups are so vital to church life. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know I'm going to talk about two things when I'm up here. Well, three. Jesus, thanking the Lord, and koinonia groups. Doing life together in community, in a small group where we have all these things in common. I love my group. We are a ragtag group of believers we were just all over the map, but we love one another. We love the Lord. And we place a priority on meeting together. We don't make an excuse. I'm too busy. Because we make time for the things that are important to us. We do. No matter what we're doing, we'll stop and eat a meal. If we have a meal to eat. We're not too busy to eat. It really is a matter of our priority. And in our group, we're going through this study of attitudes, and it's really stirring things up. And one of us will be just transparent. We'll share something. And I know, because I can see the looks on people's faces, like, they said that? Wow, that's real. Maybe a little too real. 
But you know what the response is? Encouragement, love, support. How can I help? Hey, I've gone through that too. This is what happened to me. This is how the Lord got me through it. And those who have been hesitant, they're like, wow. They came around and loved that person. Next, next time we meet, they'll share something. They're transparent. And the same response. Love, encouragement. Sometimes love and correction. You know, hey, brother, sister, you didn't quite see that right, but amen. We're, we're, we're walking together on this. And it feeds on itself. It's contagious. Because the enemy wants us to keep our sin and keep our struggles bottled up. I'm so grateful for our group. And I know many of you who are in groups feel the same way. If you're not in a group, prayerfully consider what you're missing out on. The Christian life is not to be done alone. We're supposed to live it out in community. And so we move on. Jesus spent the last two days teaching the disciples. That brings us to Wednesday and Thursday. And he started talking about his return in Matthew chapter 24. That's referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And people get all torqued up about the details in that chapter, but they miss the main point. So I just kind of flip a page or two over to Matthew 24. We're just going to read a few verses there that kind of pull out the main point. Matthew 24, verse 24. This is our Lord Jesus speaking. Well, let me pause for a moment. All of Scripture is our Lord Jesus speaking, not just the red letters. The entire written word of God is Jesus speaking. All of Scripture is inspired by God. But Jesus, in his physical incarnation, said this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Then down on verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the, the main takeaway from Matthew 24, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must, one, be watchful. Don't sleepwalk through life. Be alert. Look around. Pay attention. The concept of let go and let God is not biblical. He wants us to be active in our discipleship, in our walk with him. Walking with Christ is a deliberate act. We don't accidentally walk unless we sleepwalk, and that's something else. But walking, the act of walking is deliberate and intentional. It's not a stroll. It's not a wandering. It's referred to as a walk because there needs to be some intentionality about what we do. And then Jesus shared three parables about his return. And there's a consistent theme through all three, but from different angles. And you've heard me mention before that in 1951, Desi Arnaz pioneered the three-camera shoot 
for the TV show I Love Lucy. It was revolutionary. He knew, learned that by strategically setting three cameras on a fixed stage, he can capture all of the action. He didn't have to move the cameras around. They just cut from one camera to the other. That technique is still used today. That technique is biblical. We see in Deuteronomy that the, the truth of a matter is established by two or three witnesses. We have four Gospels, but three of them are considered the synoptic Gospels. Three different views of our Lord's earthly ministry. And here, Jesus uses three parables about his return to focus on three different components for his disciples. So if you would, turn the page to Matthew 25. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Let me just pause there and say that if you're inclined to write in your Bible, please underline the word wise and keep your pen or pencil handy. I'd like you to underline that every time it appears in this next passage. And five were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So here we see that transition from watch to wise. Be wise. A disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be watchful and we must be wise. Wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge properly applied to a situation. Knowledge is knowing that eggplant is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put the eggplant in the fruit cocktail. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Godly wisdom, biblical wisdom. Don't go along with the crowd. Even if it's a Christian crowd, test everything. Compare it to the scriptures. Compare what people say about God to what God's word says about himself. But also avoid extremes. On the one end is the extreme of groupthink, where everybody thinks exactly the same. There's a danger there, because everybody could be wrong. On the other extreme is something I call terminal uniqueness, where you're the only one who got it right and everybody else has it wrong. 
We can all fall into that trap. Both are extreme, both are in error. So be careful. And we continue on, Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each, according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me, delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Underline the word faithful there and subsequent. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the third servant didn't invest the money, so the master rebuked him. Verse 30, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you could probably guess what the third item on this list is. Be faithful. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ must be watchful, must be wise, must be faithful. Good stewards of time, money, and abilities. I appreciate Pastor Kyle's prayer this morning. We didn't coordinate that. None of us do when we, when we come up here and we have different elements and parts. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. I am so grateful when that happens because it confirms to us, okay, it's not us, it's the Lord. He wants us to do this. And so I'm so grateful of those times when we have what I call the harmony of the Holy Spirit. I'm grateful for my brothers I serve with. And so that was part of the prayer, to be good stewards of time, money, and abilities. Examine ourselves. How do our choices honor God, draw us closer to Christ? We should be considering those things. What will he say to us when he returns? To whom much is given, much is required. If he's given us a lot, we need to be very good stewards of that much that he's been given to us. And if he's given us even a little, we need to be faithful with the little things that he's given us. He is sovereign in the choice of what he gives to who. It's not a matter of merit or earning or whatever. It's his sovereign choice, and we need to be held accountable. So if he's given you a lot, know that he's going to hold you accountable to all that he's given. We need to be mindful of that, especially in a consumeristic world that is growing more and more desperate. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those on the left didn't care for those in need. Verse 45. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In that passage, you may have noticed a lot of verbs, action words, And so here we see the fourth item on the list. A disciple of Jesus Christ, we must be watchful, we must be wise, we must be faithful, and fourthly, we must be fruitful. Faith put into action. Faith without works is dead. We know that in Scripture. Meet the needs as we have means motive, and opportunity. Yes, there's a danger of falling into a checklist Christianity where we're just checking boxes off. That's a danger. But that's not an excuse not to care for people in need. It's a matter of examining our hearts. Care for others. Bless others. Draw others to Christ through our good works. In all these things, we are going to fall short. But our desire to please God moves us. And God's grace sustains us. Jesus' last lessons were about being ready for when he returns. Are you ready? With the Spirit of God in us and the Word of God with us and the people of God around us, we are fully equipped to be ready. So I challenge you again, are you ready? Let's spend some time this week examining ourselves examining our hearts, examining our priorities, what's important to us. Is our heart 
Is our mind on the eternal? Is it on Christ? Are we being distracted? Prepare our hearts. Where are we faithful? Because there are many areas in our walk that I'm sure we are faithful and obedient to Christ. We need to acknowledge that. The power of the Holy Spirit in us, and we respond to that. We are being faithful in those areas. Acknowledge that. But also acknowledge where we're falling short. Where the Holy Spirit convicted us, we stiffed on the Spirit and said, no, I'm doing my own thing. Let's prepare our hearts to remember our Lord's death on Good Friday and to celebrate his resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And may it be a new and fresh season of discipleship and community. I'd like to leave you with Jesus' last words that he spoke to his disciples as part of his discipling before he went to the cross. It's in John 16, 33. I'm just going to read it without comment. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for our Savior, our Lord and Savior, God the Son, Jesus. Lord, thank you that you have modeled the way for us. You've set the example. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet you came down to earth in human form to live amongst us, to share the truth of who the Father is and what the kingdom is like, and you invited all to repent and believe. Lord, thank you that in your mercy and in your grace, you suffered and died to pay the price for our sins, in our sins, even in the midst of our rebellion, you paid that price for us. And we are forever grateful. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you administer to our hearts in the coming days. Soften our hearts. The world beats us down and, and tries to take us away from the truth of who you are. But you promised you would never leave us or forsake us, and those that are in your hand will never be snatched out. So we thank you for that assurance. And Lord, show us in our hearts where we've fallen short. And may we quickly confess and repent to you, knowing that you are faithful to forgive us. And that we don't have to carry that burden of sin in our lives. We can just lay it at your feet. The price has been paid. And with that, to walk in a way worthy manner of the gospel. So Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters as we all look and examine our hearts. You would do a mighty work in us individually and as a body of believers here at Canyon that Resurrection Sunday would mark the beginning of a new season of community, of discipleship, of love for one another, and most important, love for you, placing you at the center of all that we think, say, and do. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.